The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudaman from The Homes Report, joined today from New Zealand by Enero, non-executive director, David Brain. David, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Very well indeed. How are you? I'm good, David. I'm, um, I am glad we're talking because we are going to discuss uh, what has widely been described as a car crash interview, perhaps the worst of its kind. Uh, and indeed, we, we are, of course, talking about Prince Andrew's interview with Emily Maitlis on BBC Newsnight. You have written a very good column which explores some of the um, just baffling decisions uh, and indeed the, the public relations implications behind this interview. Um, now, as someone that has worked on, on many interviews and facilitated interviews and media trained people, and as a connoisseur of the media interview, David, um, is this the worst you've ever seen? Well, it's one of the worst, um, for sure. Um, uh, I, I can't think of another one that's been this bad for a, a, a long time. Probably the um, the CEO of BP during the uh, Mexico oil spill when um, he said that uh, he was stressed and needed some time off and... Uh, a couple of days later was seen um, skippering his big yacht around the pristine waters of the south coast which just threw into stark relief the uh, waters of the you know of, of the Florida coast which were inundated with the oil from his own um, disaster so that's probably that's the one that I go back to as being you know almost as bad but the issue for this one is just the timing and the context um, of what it means for the royal family, I think. Mm, indeed. So, yes, that's an interesting angle. And you are, of course, an arch-royalist. Are you not, David? <laughs> no, as, as you know, I'm, I'm actually a, a, a Republican, which is a, a very much a minority view in the UK. As, uh, last survey I saw, something like a third of the country um, was in support of the notion that we should have an elected head of state as opposed to what we currently have, which is uh, somebody drawn from the very narrow gene pool of the of the Windsor family. Yes, and, and, and certainly on the evidence of this interview, it doesn't seem like that gene pool has done Prince Andrew any favours. Uh, no, I mean, I would uh, posit that the uh, gene pool is pretty shallow. Mm, okay, so let's, let's break down this interview then. Um, at what point do you start to think uh, that Prince Andrew is having problems? I mean, is it... Is it from the beginning, is it his actual, just his appearance and presentation and the way that he's answering questions, is that starting to raise red flags? Well, I, I, think, I think the underlying uh, thing in this is, you know, is his behaviour. And, you know, if we, if we think mm. about, you know, an, a, a, the interview and the subject matter that it covers, um, just, yeah, I, I mean, my, you know, I believe that as far as the royal family is concerned, that actually PR mm -hmm. is their fundamental skill. And that mm. they are in their positions because they have largely successfully 
managed to um, convince the British uh, public that um, they're likable, that they have a role, that they stand for something, that they're, they're a symbol of some values that are very important to a lot of people in the UK. And even me as a Republican can, can, uh, can see that. So just Andrew's um, behaviour, and certainly over the last few years, where he has spent a lot of time consorting with people that... Um, anybody would think were, were, were in, in contrast to those values and obviously standing head and shoulders above you know all of the dodgy businessmen that he does spend time with is um, Jeffrey Epstein and um, you know now dead committed suicide before that a convicted paedophile and somebody who even when and uh, even after his conviction Andrew was still consorting with so underlying all this is bad judgment and my issue is 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 obviously the the interview but the fact that Andrew didn't have strong enough people around him to be able to front him up with his behavior uh, to uh -huh. shine a light on the quality of the people that he was consorting with and suggest to him that if not now then sometime in the future this sort of issue that he's come into was uh, was was surely inevitable so um, I just don't think he had the advisors around him. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is remarkable. I read one account that he actually thought the interview went well um, <laughs> yeah. afterwards. And, and, it's, and it's only in the ensuing coverage, I think, that um, the, the full gravity of the situation has hit them. And in fact, I actually read today that he's, he's considering doing another interview. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what your, your view on that would be. <laughs> Uh, well, um, no, he should, uh, what to clarify the first one? No, look, I mean, <sighs> unless he has a better story to tell and unless he can, yeah, you know, and under, underlying all this, of course, is that, um, the crimes that Epstein mm -hmm. uh, was found guilty of, um, yep. being, you know, a paedophile trafficking yep. in underage, um, girls, were really, really serious and, and you know, he hurt a lot of people. And the yep. first thing Andrew would need to, you know, needed to do if he was going to do this interview at all um, was to recognise that and to um, uh, convey his, um, his, his contrition for having been involved with such a person and definitely to have apologised for the fact that even after Epstein was found guilty in a US court, that still Andrew was cons was conspiring with him and was being seen publicly with him, which, you know, for, for a lot of Epstein's victims could have meant, well, look, you know, this guy has done these terrible things to me and yet he's still being sought out and spending, you know, and, and the, one of the princes of, of England is spending time with him. And, you know, that, that kind of whitewashes Epstein's um, reputation to some, ex some extent, or at least shines a good light on it. And that must have affected the victim. So Andrew could quite wow. easily have apologised, and that would not have affected any legal case that he may or may not um, face from, um, you know, the, the, the woman who claims that he, he, he had sex with her. Yeah, in, indeed. I think Prince Andrew's continued presence with Epstein confers a, a, a sort of respectability yeah. um, on Epstein. Um, and like you said, wouldn't have been difficult to make some sort of an apology to, to say that, you know, he, he completely misjudged the situation and, and you know, he's, he's trying to do whatever he can to, 
to make it better. But we didn't get that at all. There wasn't a single apology in the whole no. interview. In, instead, no. we had um, just really weird obfuscation. You know, there was there was the the, the claim that he was too honourable. Um, then there were the really the, the really weird stuff that you know he doesn't sweat. Uh, he only wears suits in London. Is only into public hugging. Doesn't know where the bar is at Tramps in Mayfair. I mean, I've never been in, in Tramps in Mayfair, and I'm pretty sure I can figure out where the bar is. Um, <laughs> well, I have actually, and, and it's not very oh, big. Well, That's all I remember, and so it would be quite um, to not see the the bar for sure. So, sorry. Are you, are you saying you you've been in Tramps in Mayfair? And I have you know been where the bar is? in. I have been in Tramps in Mayfair, and it's not a big club, so it would mm. be impossible to avoid the bar. Um, yeah. So there's that. Then, of course, there's the famous Pizza Express visit um, in Woking, um, which is an, you know another just just really weird sort of disingenuous. I guess it's a, it's an exercise in disingenuity, if that's actually a word. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's mistake upon mistake. So the first mistake, behaving badly. Um, the second mistake, believing that you can go into an interview to sort of draw a line under this, either without a, a, you know, a compelling narrative that um, you know, clears your name, and two, without recognising the human uh, implications of what Epstein has done and, and, and not be prepared uh, to make an apology. So th those, those are the basic faults, I think, in this. And then you can add layer in other ones. So if you, if you let's say you were going to make an apology and let's say you did have a compelling narrative, um, you know, picking news tonight, um, that's sort of, you know, that's walking into the, the jaws of, <laughs> yeah. you know, some of the best trained journalists on the planet who've got proper researchers and will have forensically been through um, everything and you know maybe there were softer targets from media for him to for him to sort of pick off and and tell his story if you like but um, mm. so there's another fault and then it didn't look to me like he'd done much training uh, in this either because you know you're quite right any PR person worth their soul will have said well look if you're going to talk about Pizza Express that's really quite weird and you know um, that will set off social memes the sweating thing mm -hmm. will set off social means. People can work out that it doesn't actually rule you out of being tramps at a tramps nightclub that night if you took your daughters to Pizza Express at you know between three and five o'clock in the afternoon that day. It's you know it's thirty miles away. It's mm -hmm. not hard. Um, mm -hmm. So there is almost a total lack of good behaviour, a total lack then mm -hmm. of understanding of how the world will view how he's behaved, a total. Um, lack of um, preparation then for uh, the interview and the story that you're going to tell, a lack of um, uh, training to be able to deliver that story uh, properly, and then an understanding as the interview is going on that you need to be reacting and hearing what you're saying and maybe changing tack from that. And I mean, the weird thing to me was looking at him at the end of it, it looked to me, he never panicked. He looked like yeah. he was a man who felt that he was performing well. <laughs> yeah, it really raised questions about the environment in which he lives, I think. Um, it, it struck me as someone who's not himself questioned a lot. Uh, and, you know, perhaps these kinds of responses um, 
other kinds of things he's been able to get away with, you know, for years by, by saying these kinds of things and, and, and actually not being questioned on it. He wasn't ready, like you said, for the harsh glare of, um, of media scrutiny that that is brought on by a program like Newsnight. No. Um, but surely he should have been, right? I mean, the royals are, are not no strangers to this kind of scrutiny in this day and age. No, and look, and normally they have some of the best advisors up close and personal. Um, with them and you know he had obviously parted ways with Jason Stein who um, uh, went a couple of weeks before and you can imagine that if Prince Andrew was insisting on doing uh, this interview that Stein's reputation would have been at risk and he took the smart move and thought well the hell with that I'm you know I'm I'm gone but uh, I, I mean I think what this does for our industry it sort of throws into stark relief the need for strong senior PR counsel with public figures and CEOs of um, important companies because they are public figures. And one of the key skills of a PR person is to be able to sort of hold up a mirror to the CEO or the organisational leader, or Prince in this case, and tell him or her how the world really does view them and the behaviour uh, that's under question. And that can be quite hard because, um, you know, all CEOs to some extent live in the bubble. I mean, certainly the ones that run the bigger organisations, um, they've probably been paid an awful lot of money for a long time. They have people around them who are very much doing their will. Um, many of them have got the sort of personalities that um, don't always brook being um, told contradictory messages or that they're not the greatest thing very well. It's The strongest PR people are the ones that can stand up to that, have the tact, diplomacy and personal relationship to be able to say, hey, look, bullshit, this is how the world currently sees you. And if you behave in this way, um, this is how it will be viewed and this is the impact on the organisation. Um, Andrew didn't have as Jason Steen had gone, anybody around him like that, which I find remarkable. See, that, that is something I wanted to ask you about. I mean, how good, how, so, or maybe put, let me put it a different way, how improved would you say the royal family PR operation is today compared to, say, 10, 15 years ago? Do they, do they kind of demonstrate the kind of public relations that could stand up with, with the biggest clients in the business? Well, they used to. So if, if you, if you uh, this has been a pretty horrible year for them with, um, you know, the, the two, uh, with, with, you know, Meghan and Harry and Wills and Kate oh. apparently being at loggerheads and um, going their sort of separate ways on message. But up until a year ago, look, yeah, I mean, I think from the days of the um, aftermath of uh, Diana's death, and when uh, the Queen and the Royal Family realised that they'd misread the public view then, and as we all know famously, Tony Blair had to step in and force the Queen to come down to um, uh, London and to show sorrow and regret for the death of Diana. After that, they really got their act together. Prince Charles has hired us, you know, a series of very good people. Dickie Arbiter, you know, famously ran that whole operation um, very successfully for many years. But I think as the Queen and her sort of central coordination um, of uh, proceedings as sort of, um, you know, she's, she's older and um, move, moving off centre stage, it's become much more difficult for them to coordinate. So I think they've had a horrible year. But up until last year, th this year, um, yeah, I mean, they've done pretty well. They're pretty sophisticated. So how they could have let Andrew wander into this situation with nobody around 
him advising him of seniority is uh, is remarkable, really. Yeah, I mean, how does that happen? Is I, I, I don't know. Is is a structure? This isn't a conventional company, is there? Is no. PR function. I mean, you know, do, do they operate you know independently? Does each royal have their own PR staff? Uh, they do. They have their own PR staffs, but it used to be sort of run and coordinated. I mean, bear, look, this this isn't a, a yes, it's it's, a, it's a royal family, so it's different to everything else. But you know, in some senses, if you look at the way in which political org, um, communications organises itself, um, Alistair Campbell, for you know, famously, for example, instituted you know the grid, where he coordinated the uh, communications outputs of all the different ministries to make sure that there was a concerted on-message picture portrayed of New Labour through the Blair years um, that made the most of every announcement that was to be made that didn't, you know, made sure on a tactical level that two ministries weren't making important announcements at the same time and, um, and that their messaging laddered up to something that talked about progress in the right way for, for, for New Labour. That sort of function seems to be missing at the moment in the royal family. Mm. And like you said in your column, this is what they do. They don't have a product or a service to sell. This isn't Tony Hayward, um, no. who's an oil man, uh, claiming he wants his life back. These are people whose really only function is, in a way, public relations. It's, it's to win over public opinion. Yeah, I mean, they, they operate um, because the public thinks they stand for something important in the country, um, and that they are people to be looked up to. I mean, that's the whole notion of royalty. Obviously, they are different to us. And, you know, the, it, literally, we are expected to look up to them, to their behaviours and to the values that they symbolise. Um, they don't have any way to manage that other than through PR tactics. They can't write policy. There's no product or service that they can improve or launch to make our lives better. The product is them and their behaviour. That's PR. Um, and so to go into this situation without a high-caliber PR person is, um, I mean, it's gross negligence by Andrew. Um, and the issue, of course, is that, you know, we are getting to a time when, you know, to put it politely, we're going to go through transition. The Queen won't last forever and Charles will ascend to the throne and there'll be a whole new focus then on the royal family. Much of the uh, reverence for the royal family in the UK and abroad is tied up in respect for the Queen and even, you know, me as a Republican, you can't help but admire how she has run things and performed herself over the years. So when she goes, there will be a new light and a new judgment, even by people who are monarchist, about the appropriateness of that institution as you know, lead uh, um, a, a, a heads of state for for the UK. So it's really important at this time that they have their act together. Mm. Indeed, I mean, it, it. You know, without wanting to underplay the, the gravity of the situation, and in, in a way, that's the real shame here. They, they are, of course, the real victims here. Which another of the most remarkable things about this interview was Prince Andrew seemed to see himself as as the only victim. Um, in this, in, you know, in this entire situation, but it has really turned him into a laughing stock, you know. And as you mentioned, all the memes; these are going to run for, you know, it's just manna from heaven, really. Well, it is. I mean, you know, he was he was always Randy Andy because he'd been seen in nightclubs. But there was a degree of sort of, um, well, that's okay. He's a young prince. Um, that's what he does. And then when he got 
married, there was a degree to which um, there was a fondness for him and Fergie before they they uh, they yeah. dropped the ball on they dropped the ball on that. But I, I don't think he will ever recover from this. And and by the way, yeah. the, you know, this interview now is just the start of it because you know what um, charities are going to want him on their board, you know, on the letterhead. Right. Um, we're already seeing some of them begin to move away. What businesses? He's got that um, organisation that helps sort of um, tech entrepreneurs. Um, yeah, Pitch at Palace. Yeah. Um, um, I think KPMG has already distanced itself from Pitch at Palace. I think it says a lot when KPMG is distancing itself from you. Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole, his whole, he, he knows nothing about tech businesses, obviously. His whole notion is to put you know, a patina and uh, a respectability over that organisation and bring people together. And if actually his image and reputation now is forcing people away, he cannot do his his job. Um, so that's happening. But more interestingly, I was looking, you know, this morning at the, um, the Times and the Daily Mail, not the two most left-wing or Republican-leaning of publications, and they are both putting people onto the money. So now you've got stories running about oh, yeah. where, how does he live this lifestyle given the income that he's got. So it's what he's done with this interview is that he's made himself um, a legitimate target of even um, normally rep um, uh, monarchy monarchy supporting media. Um, mm. There's blood in the water, and I think the story will run and run. Mm. So what's the um, what's the public relations playbook here? I mean, we're already, I think, seeing uh, the Queen. I mean, obviously not directly, but the Queen's people, let's say, distancing itself or distancing themselves from this interview. Yes. Um, I mean, what is the kind of playbook here? Is there a way out? Well, he's got two choices, really. Uh, you know, the first thing he needs to do is he needs to, if not convince Jason Stein to come back and help him, he needs he needs someone in there to come and help him. And it's not just about what he does now, about does he do another interview or whatever. It is about you know a commitment from him never to be seen consorting with people like this man again. And and it, by, by the way, he's not the only uh, person of sort of slightly strange and um, background that uh, Andrew um, spends time with. He's got to clean up his act. Um, that's the first thing, and he has to begin to act like a royal. I mean, they all do to some extent. The Queen's got to, you know, set a very high bar for that. They all have to get their act together in that respect. But if he is to do or say anything in the next days or weeks to redress all of this, he has to apologise for consorting with Jeffrey Epstein. He has to apologise uh, and show sympathy for the victims uh, of Epstein. And he has to apologise for consorting with the man after he was found guilty of these terrible crimes. Yeah, he spent four days at his house in New York and that was to break up with him. Yes. Uh, because it was a convenient place to stay, apparently. Yeah, because the hotels are not also very convenient. I mean, there's just no credibility in all of that. Yeah, it's, it is totally incredible. It is a car crash and a train wreck. Um, will you, will the PR industry be using this interview in its media training manuals for years to come? I think so. I think so. Look, one of the, one of the great things about, about this as a training piece of material for the PR industry is that um, when you go into... Um, train clients, you often do scenario planning, so it's not just about training them for the interview, but 
you know, you sort of um, picture the scenario, so the strategic context and backdrop to this, which in this case would be the royal family and the fact they're going into transition, um, and then talk about the options that are available to somebody in an Andrew's position. And you can then role play about, well, what is the PR strategy for this? And then finally get to, um, you know, the interview itself. And the beauty of this case study is because it's so famous and we all know it now, it'll be easy for people to, um, you know, to convey and uh, get interesting. Mm. Well, you know, I, I suppose that's, I don't know, it's not really a silver lining for Andrew that uh, <laughs> no. this, this interview will, will help the, the PR industry and, and, and perhaps help clients and, and in the future. But it's something. Um, just wanted to come back. So did you say the guy who ran the, the Royal PR operation, his name was Dickie Arbiter? Yes, that was a long time ago. That's, I mean, Arbiter, that's a great name for a PR person. <laughs> it is. That's, um, it is. Uh, that's wonderful. That's really nominative determinism <laughs> at play. It is. Um, so we had a chat separately about some of the great interviews we were discussing this, this one. And, you know, I think this goes right in at the top but you know for listeners who are perhaps looking for other classics of this genre are there any others you would advise in terms of um, I mean, how the, not to do the, it? the tony haywood bp um gulf of mexico one absolutely is is brilliant um the sainsbury's yep. c so the sainsbury's the uk retailer the ceo um who was caught um just before the uh, interviews, um, talking about we're in the money, uh, when he's talking about his results and, you know, and then we're talking about um, prices in the stores is, is, is a really, you know, once you go into a studio, you get mic'd up, you're ne you know, the mic is never off and there's lots of incidents yeah. like that, I think. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, top mic. Um, there's my favourite, this will be a little obscure for our US listeners, but um, Joe Kinnear. I think you're f familiar with this one um, from yes. the sports pages. I think when he took over as Newcastle, I think it was director of football, maybe it was manager, I can't remember. Um, five or six years ago, uh, turned the air blue at his first press conference. Yes. Anyone who wants to listen to that one, definitely it's probably not safe for work. Unless um, you've got your headphones you in. No, I mean, there was, there was a couple of journalists who turned up for a press conference and he... Um, took uh, exception to some stories that they had written and he basically in what he thinks is before the press conference starts unleashes the most foul-mouthed tirade at these guys threatening them legally and calling them every word under the sun just before the mm. press conference unfortunately for him the whole thing was recorded and then released afterwards yeah I mean it's it's so bad that one that it's actually really good yeah, I think. Yeah, um, and you know, obviously, state the stakes on that one, and indeed on, on some of these examples, you see the stakes are much lower. I mean, the stakes couldn't really have been a lot higher than they were for Prince Andrew at this one. It's not like Joe Kinnear's entire reputation was at stake, um, like it is here. No, no. Um, there are some other classic examples as well of, um, you know, uh, journalists are people too, and. Um, agreeing to go do an interview, maybe in a crisis or issue situation, is always high risk. Um, you never entirely know how it's going to turn out. And 
um, CEOs or the people who are going to do the interview are humans and sometimes they lose a nerve. I mean, some of the worst things I've seen is where people have been empty chaired. They've said that they were going to turn up for an interview, change their mind for good or bad reason beforehand and then get empty chaired by the journalist. Um, I think sometimes as well, those examples of people walking out, um, it's very yeah. rarely does that work for the person who walks out. Um, occasionally it does if you've got incredibly hectoring or lecturing uh, journalists, but um, that's that's also there's some good examples of that. Yeah, there's um, I think there's Russell Crowe. I seem to recall him walking out uh, during a film review where the reviewer asked him about his accent. I think it was in the Robin Hood movie, right? Um, and asked him. I apparently, didn't think his accent was let's say the purest. Nottinghamshire or South Yorkshire. I don't want to get into a big debate on, on where Robin Hood is from. That, that will enrage many of our listeners in that part of England. Um, there's the Bee Gees walking out on uh, Clive Anderson. Don't know if you remember that one. No, I, I don't. But that's yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's a good 20, 25 years ago. I do, I do. I remember watching that one live, and that was kind of amazing. Yeah, um, I, I think sort of um, it's different for celebrities. I think. I mean. Um, you know, we don't owe them anything. They're they're not in public office or running anything big other than, you know, starring in movies. And sometimes um, for celebrities, musicians, uh, it's possibly not bad to be seen as slightly crazy. Um, mm. I think doing that sort of thing if you're the CEO or you hold public office is, is, um, is another thing, though. Yeah, really good point, actually. I think, see, yeah, you're right. Celebrities can kind of get away with it. Um, and then, of course, there's Gerald Ratner. Um, you know, so Gerald, that was... Yeah. So the, I mean, again, for, for those, uh, this is another British example where Ratner's was one of the, I think probably the biggest high street jeweller uh, in the UK. It was a huge business, very sort of low-end um, jeweller, um, but mm. very, very successful, run by a brilliant CEO called Gerald Ratner, who, in uh, not really press, but almost voluntarily in a TV interview, described one of his sort of new range. I think it was a, I think it was um, a sort of a, a silver-plated tray uh, or, or, or something as crap. He described his own product as crap, <laughs> and of course, what that meant to everybody who had ever bought anything from Ratner's was, look, we're idiots, and this guy has been selling us and his own omission crap for all those years. And the business subsequently, well, I mean, over a period of as little as six months, I think, just collapsed. Um, so from yeah, that one... has to be the most devastating. Um, if you really want a good example yeah. of the cost of a bad interview, yeah, uh, I think I think Gerald Bratner's has got to be up there. I can't think of, you know, Tony Hayward's was bad, but it didn't end BP. It didn't end. Um, it didn't end BP. I mean, it took. I mean, share price of what it took BP down compared to the whole value of Ratner's would have been would have been larger. But yeah, um, Ratner's is the most where a business disappeared because of a TV interview that wasn't even an issue in crisis at the time. But the interview yeah. was so bad that the yeah. business disappeared. Yeah, I think more recently I'd, I'd probably point to Travis Kalanick as a good example of someone who I don't think it was any one particular interview. Um, but certainly his public appearances um, really hurt Uber uh, and, you know, hurt the business and, and it, to the extent that they, you know, they had to get rid of him and, and now, you know, implement a big turnaround plan and a big, you know, effort to win back public support. So, 
the lesson here, as always, is hire a good PR person. Hire a a good PR person, behave appropriately within the values of your company or organization to start with, because then you won't have as many of these uh, many of these issues but hire somebody who challenges you has been through these circumstances before um, is strong enough as an individual to face you know CEO and C level and board level people down with the the often painful truth and then brings in the people with the broadcast or media expertise to train you to be able to go through the experience Mm. It's interesting the point you made, you know, behave appropriately within the values of your organization, um, which, which I think for corporates is, you know, it's, it's fundamentally sound advice. Now, with the royal family, are there question marks around the values of that organization? I mean, are they clearly defined? Do they need to be better defined? What are they? Uh, well, you're asking a Republican. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, um, look, I think, I think in the hearts and minds of many people in the UK, well, the majority of people in the UK, the royal family stands for um, a quintessential part of British values. And they would not see those values as being a, um, aligned to spending time with a proven paedophile, to go back yeah, to clearly, our example. Um, and I think whilst they're humans and they lead their own lives you know, many of the royal family make a lot of effort to live up to those values. And, and as I said, the Queen has set a very high benchmark uh, for for that. So, yeah, they probably don't have it set down in a manual and maybe they need a modern day comms person to go in and kind of do the sort of stuff that we would do in a firm. So set down, you know, the values and the behaviour um, norms that we expect and, you know, literally have people, you know, as you do in many corporations, have to sign up to those code of ethics, those modes of behavior. Yeah, they, I think they need a Republican to do it, David. <laughs> I mean, who better to really, you know, hold up the mirror? I'm afraid I would probably be working to bring them down from the inside. <laughs> yeah, quite possible. Well, that's, I think, um, you know, they've had spies in their midst before. Well, yeah, and um, maybe Agent Andrew is in fact the um, most effective Republican in the country. Well, I think we can all agree that Andrew's behaviour, it, it just doesn't align with, you know, the values of any kind of sort of civilised um, public figure. It's what you would expect, I think. Mm. Um, and yeah, that is that is the real shortcoming here. The, the interview has, um, as you've said, created a reputational tailspin um, but yes, it, it all begins with his behaviour. Um, well, thank you very much, David. Uh, this was uh, this was yeah, an interesting conversation. Um, it it will be fascinating actually to see what happens next. Whether there will be another interview from Prince Andrew, uh, and indeed how the um, how the how the royal family, Buckingham Palace, how they I suppose limit the damage here. Yeah. He needs to apologise. Unreservedly. Great, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today.